0: For that very kind in- introduction. Uh, I do not thank you for asking me to preach on this passage. Um, <clears throat> I was a bit taken aback because the title of the sermon series is Wonderful Words of Life. And Romans 7 does not seem to fit, since it is more about sin and death and the failure of the law to conquer sin and death. And this chapter is uh, most complicated and much debated among scholars, and um, I have completed my commentary in Romans. I'm ready to send it off uh, tomorrow. And I asked if I might lecture on this passage uh, from my commentary, and so I'm very grateful that Dean Still said that was all right. That means this service is different from others. I might add a a, a note about uh, the scripture which is in in the plaque dedicated to Dr. Ray Summers in the bench out in the courtyard and this name takes me back when last century I was an MDiv student at uh, Southern Seminary and taking a baby Greek course using the essentials of biblical Greek by Ray Summers Uh, that course sparked my interest and excitement about reading the, Greek, the New Testament in Greek and wanting to be a student of the New Testament. Little did I know that uh, five years later I would be teaching uh, this Essentials of New Testament grammar for many years after that. Uh, Dr. Summers became a professor at uh, Baylor, and founded the graduate program at Baylor and has touched so many people's lives uh, through his ministry and his his writing. I also, in searching for a suitable hymn for Romans 7, was taken back to Southern Seminary. There are few hymns in the modern hymnals that I thought would fit Romans 7, uh, but I did discover this one by Basil Manley Jr back in 1850 uh, that uh, he was a founding member of the faculty at Southern when it began in 1859. And I did think that this, and I also love the tune, it's the Navy hymn tune, Uh, but I, uh, and Dr. York would point out, there is an additional Marine uh, verse, but mostly ignored. Well. A primary aim of the letter to the Romans is to build up the the believer's confidence in the truth of Paul's gospel that discloses the righteousness of God apart from the law. And if his gospel does uphold the law as he insists it does in 331, he has yet to explain why believers not only are discharged from the obligations in the old written law code, but must be released from the law if they're to bear fruit for God. He now sets out in this unit to show why the law has no role in the believer's salvation, but he must do so delicately so as not to disparage the law or imply that it led Israel up a blind alley. Paul defends his gospel against Jewish concerns that it devalues the law's holiness and seeks to persuade his audience that the law still has no part in God's saving purpose for humanity. This passage then leads into his argument in chapter 8 that the spirit is God's alternative to the law and the antidote to the flesh. But from chapter 6, we learn that Paul locates participation in the new aeon of salvation in the midst of solidarity with the old. Believers have died with Christ, but still have a death to die. They participate in Christ's risen life before their own bodily resurrection, which means that they still live in a pre-resurrection fleshly body. So we come to verse seven. Paul asks, what then shall we say? That the law is sin And it's prompted by his assertion in 7.5 that while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. It seems that the Mosaic law is the villain that abetted our bondage to sin. Such an inference is completely out of the question for Paul. And once again, he's done a series of these rhetorical questions that he answers with a vehement no. The law is not sin, but it is related to sin. Paul explains if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. Paul's citation of this command omits the specific list of items in Exodus and Deuteronomy that one is not to covet. Your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's house male or female slave, ox, donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And by doing so, Paul makes the commandment applicable to every kind of coveting. To covet is to set one's heart on possessing for oneself something forbidden and not one's own, which leads, which leads to actions that are harmful to one's neighbor. Coveting is radical selfishness, The consuming desire to turn all things, God, other human beings, other creatures, the environment, to the service of my own interests, regardless of how it might hurt them. This commandment of all the Ten Commandments, therefore, is particularly apt as an example of how sin takes one captive. One might, for example, be able meticulously to keep the Sabbath holy. But everyone comes to grief trying to keep covetousness in check. In verse eight, Paul continues to personify sin as something that deceives, something that breeds death. When he learned from the law that coveting was a sin, sin took over and conjured up every desire within him. Mindfulness of the covenant commandments prohibition did not and does not curb fleshly fleshly urges. The verb to it, by the way, is also in Greek, can be translated to lust. The flesh is a spawning ground for all manner of desires and envies. And these cravings usher in sin and enable it to set up a base of operation in the flesh that take command of a person's life. Sin then operates like a virus. You can tell I wrote this during a pandemic it hijacks living cells to replicate, spread, and ransack the body. And as a virus can camouflage itself to hide from, from, from as well as sabotage a cell's antiviral defenses, so sin can mask itself as innocuous. Oh, it can disable any resistance mechanism such as the conscience. And it can throw open all the doors for every manner of destructive evil to enter. It affects. Its effects are similar to the descriptions of the Dementors, the gliding, wraith-like, dark creatures in Harry Potter's series. J.K. Rowling writes, "They infest the darkest, filthiest places. They glory in decay and despair. They drain peace, hope, and happiness out of the air around them. If it can, the Dementor will feed on you long enough to reduce you to something like itself, soulless and evil." While sin's stratagems are multifarious and the symptoms of its infection are manifold, its results are always the same. Death. The commandment is not to blame for awaking sin from our dormancy; It is sin that incites disobedience by taking advantage of our creaturely condition and our vulnerability to its enticements. Sin may seem to be a coercing dark power behind our actions, but individuals... Individuals do not escape culpability by blaming, their, blaming their, flight on, their plight on demon sin with a capital S. Eve blamed the serpent for deceiving her, but God did not absolve her from violating the commandment. Adam and Eve succumbed to temptation from a deep spiritual pride within them that made them want to be equal to God. It is not the law's fault that is incapable of changing the dark side of human nature or controlling its infatuations or furies. What the law can do, however, is expose our unrestrained desires for what they are. The self-absorbed, self-seeking, cutthroat desire for more and more. The I appears in the first person singular in verse 7 and in the pronoun me in verse 8, but Paul's sustained use of I beginning in verse 9 in the following verses makes this passage stand out from the rest of Romans and also from his other writings. It would seem obvious that Paul refers to himself, but many find it problematic that he would describe himself a believer as such a miserably insolvent sinner. It appears to controvert his assurances that believers had died to sin, two are no longer enslaved to it, 6.6, are freed from it, 6.7, are dead to it, 6.11. He has claimed that those who live under grace no longer live under sin's dominion, 6.14, are obedient from the heart, 6.17, have become slaves of righteousness, 6.18, and are slaves of God, 6.22. You get the point. Therefore interpreters offer other options for who is speaking in this passage and whether the speaker refers to the past or the present. Some contend that Paul speaks about his experience under the law before becoming a Christian. If Paul were speaking autobiographically about his earlier life in Judaism, however, he would seem to contradict his statements in Philippians 3.6 and Galatians 1.3-14. In these passages, he does not say, say that he felt despair over his inability to fulfill the law, but just the opposite. He surpassed others in zeal for the traditions of the fathers and considered himself to be blameless when it came to righteousness under the law. Others argue that after turning to Christ, Paul possessed a clear view of the law's inherent problems and God's purpose in giving it and the dangers of unenlightened zeal. So that now he assesses differently his former life. But why does he not make it clear that he is speaking here about his former life in Judaism as he does in Philippians and Galatians? This view surely founders on the statement that he was once alive apart from the law. Growing up a Jew, there was never a time when Paul was apart from the law. One could quibble that Paul refers to the time before he reached the age of accountability and became a bar mitzvah son of the commandments when he would have undertaken the demands of the law, but he does not describe his childhood innocence. Perhaps because Paul uses the vivid eye for rhetorical effect as he adopts the persona of Israel and reflects retrospectively on her condition struggling to obey the law apart from Christ but if the eye refers to Israel's experience under the law and the commandments first given at Mount Sinai it is hard to imagine that Paul would say that Israel was alive apart from the law and sin only sprang to life after they received the law from Moses encounter with God on Mount Sinai this claim is only true of Adam before the divine commandment resulted in Adam's expulsion from the garden when he transgressed it. It is also unlikely that Israel in their current state of unbelief would offer thanks to God through Jesus Christ our Lord for their future deliverance. An allusion to the Edenic story of Adam best explains Paul's use of the past tense in these verses. Paul reflects when Paul reflects theologically he tends to theologize out of the story world of biblical narratives and then applies it to current situations. When he talks of faith, as he does in chapter 4, he thinks of Abraham, who epitomized faith. When he talks of law, as he does in Second Corinthians 3, he thinks of Moses, who epitomized the law. When he talks about sin, as he does in Romans 5, 12-21, he thinks of Adam, who epitomized sin. In Romans 7, Paul harks back to the archetypal Adam story to reflect on the characteristic human response to the divine commandment. At least four echoes from the Edenic story emerge in these verses. First, the commandment, which is singular, recalls Genesis 2.16, etc. And Adam and Eve sinned only after God gave Adam the commandment not to eat of the fruit of the tree of life. Otherwise, sin would have remained dead because there was no command for them to disobey. Second, the image of sin taking opportunity recalls the serpent' sin's a sudden appearance immediately after God issued the commandment. Third, the statement that sin deceived me echoes Eve's excuse for breaking the commandment when she says, the serpent deceived me. And fourth, the connection between the sinful deed and death in 7, 9 through 11 recalls the penalty that God stipulated for violating the commandment, you shall surely die. Some interpreters claim that the true-to-life feature of the I narrative <clears throat> stems from Paul's use of speech in character, or the technical term is prosopopeia. That is, he impersonates Adam or Eve throughout the whole unit. The ancient rhetorical theorists, however, are unanimous that the speaker whose character is being represented always must be identified. It does not happen in this speech. Therefore, it is better, in my opinion, to see Paul reflecting in these verses on his own encounter with the Mosaic Law as a recapitulation of the primeval sin of Adam and Eve in the garden. And Adam's sin... Paul sees himself and his own experience with sin when confronted with God's command. In his own sin, he sees Adam, the representative of all sinful humankind. The I equals Adam equals Paul equals every human who rebels against God's commands and comes under death's grip. Everyone's sin may not be like the transgression of Adam, but the conflated story of Adam and Eve mirrors everyone's experience of being beguiled by sin. The serpent or sin introduced as the craftiest of animals conned Eve in three ways that characterized sin's enduring ploys. First, it cited only the one negative command that God issued. Did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? It deliberately ignored God's gracious beneficence. You may freely eat of every other tree of the garden. Second, it cajoled Eve into believing that God would not punish disobedience by death. You will not die. God's only bluffing. God's blasé about disobedience. It used the commandment to sow seeds of doubt about God's goodwill. It claimed that God issued the command not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because God did not want humans to become godlike. The serpent sweet taught Eve into believing that she could be like God if only she were bold enough to rebel. The ruses work because the text says that the forbidden tree was a delight to the eyes. The serpent used the command to awaken covetousness and in this case wanting to be like God. The echoes from Genesis account admirably serve to reveal how sin so easily seduces our fleshly nature since the flesh finds so many things in the world eye-catching and alluring. As a result, fleshly humans continue to be taken in by sin's web of lies and ensnared in sin's web of death. The commandment, in verses 10 through 11, does not refer only to the one commandment given to Adam in the garden, but now represents the whole law. The scriptures attest that the law was given as a way of life that leads to life. In providing a standard for what is right and wrong, the commandment does dispel moral indifference. But knowing what to do and what not to do does not able one to obey. Sin is so powerful that it manipulates the law and, like a parasite, sucks the air out of the law's life-giving function so that it yields only a suffocating death. While Adam and Eve did not immediately die after transgressing God's commandment, their immediate alienation from God points to a spiritual death. After their expulsion from the garden, life east of Eden turned into a train wreck as sin and death pervaded all human existence. But Paul does not want the Roman audience to think that he scorns the law or teaches all the Jews living among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, as was rumored among some Jewish believers in Jerusalem, according to Acts 21. He says the law is holy, as are all the scriptures. Holiness means that it is pure, perfect, consecrated to the service of God. The law is just, reflecting the divine canons of what is virtuous and evil and representing the divine criteria about how we will be assessed at the final judgment. It is good meeting all highest possible standards. But the law remains a problem. And so in the second unit in verses 13 through 25, which begins with another rhetorical question, did what is good then bring death to me? It receives another strong negative. The adjective good applies not just to the commandment, but to the whole law. The law's holiness is indisputable for Paul. But when sin establishes a foothold in the flesh, it twists what is given for Israel's well-being into a tool that churns out evil. The law is spiritual in what it prescribes, but it is not the Holy Spirit. It packs no spiritual punch to animate the behavior it prescribes. It reveals humanity's plight under sin's domination, but it is powerless to change it. Because the law operates in the sphere of the flesh, the law is severely handicapped. It cannot break sin's stanglehold. Sin manipulates the law to exploit the weakness of the flesh. But the law turns the tables on sin. It makes sinners accountable to God. It reveals that sin, sin's final outcome is only death. But since the law only shows sin to be utterly sinful, it follows that God did not intend for the law to be sin's remedy or the path to salvation. And that is, the fact, that is this fact is the main point of Paul in this entire section. In verse 13, he says, Since our sinful passages are roused by the law at work in our members to bear fruit of death, in verse 5, and the very commandment that promised life proved death to me, in verse 10, one might reasonably ask if the law is not a Trojan horse that is aligned with sin to bring death to us. Since the law is good, Paul says, this inference is wrong. It is also wrong to infer that God miscalculated in giving law since the results are so ruinous. The purpose clause in verse 13, in order that sin might be shown to be sin and in working death in me throughout what is good and the result clause so that through the commandment sin might become sinful beyond measure. By the way, that's not the RSV translation. It's another That implies that God foresaw what would happen. Paul hints that a quiet providence is at work as God's purpose was to bring knowledge of sin through the law. And one can construe that purpose as being ultimately redemptive. Awareness of sin can strip away the thin makeup of fake righteousness that humans doll themselves with to dupe themselves and others that they are holy. When their sin sickness is fully exposed by the law and they acknowledge that they are in a desperate situation from which they cannot extricate themselves. It can make them more receptive to God's remedy. It comes only through what God has done in Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit. In verse 14, Paul leaves the Edenic echoes that surface and switches to the present tense to link the narrative to the presence which Paul shares with his readers. The law is holy, just, just, and good, and now he adds that it is also spiritual. The problem is that he is fleshly. The translation here of the word sarkinos in the NIV that he is unspiritual is misleading. It is not just misleading, it's dead wrong. The adjective fleshly refers to his anthropological condition, being made of flesh and blood. Paul acknowledges that we are all creatures of play with physical needs and appetites. Even when one's existence is in Christ, existence in an earthly body can levy an unavoidable encumbrance. In Gethsemane, Jesus rebuked his failed disciples who failed to watch as he had commanded and conceded, The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Fleshly humans are intrinsically weak and powerless and sit perilously on the powder keg of sin that can explode at any time. Paul does not describe the anguish of humans in general who, apart from Christ, try to live by the law, but their inner passions drive themselves to act against their better judgment. Unregenerate persons do not delight in the law of God. They don't desire to do it since they neither seek God in 3.11 or do they fear God in 3.18. Paul describes himself, a Christian, who is a creature of flesh and blood. And being flesh and blood, being fleshly, is part and parcel of our earthly existence. The problem for the law, which is spiritual, then is that it operates in a fleshly realm where humans easily skid off its guiding rails into a quagmire of their innate frailty. In speaking about himself, Paul speaks for every believer who yearns to do God's will and falls short. Paul confesses to his past sin of violently persecuting the church and trying to destroy it, which he says makes him the least of all the apostles. But he does not say that since becoming a Christ follower, all sin is now behind him. The I in 1 Corinthians 13 represents a believer speaking. And Paul recognizes that this I can become loveless and reduced to a clanking chunk of bronze or a clamorous symbol. In Romans 7, the I is the Apostle Paul speaking as an exemplar on our behalf to whom he writes. He does not stand apart from the addressees and lecture them on sin. Instead, he identifies with them in the struggle with sin. The you in eight two, through Christ Jesus the law through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit that gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death, reveals that he understands his experience to be also their experience as in fleshed human beings. Interpreters who dismiss this autobiographical interpretation, and there are many. They ask how Paul could possibly say that he is, as a believer, sold under sin. The paradox of being freed from sin and yet sold under sin reflects the tension between the already and the not yet. One does not become defleshed and transported to another dimension of existence upon becoming a believer. Our fleshiness means that we always have one foot in the old Adamic order so that we belong at the same time both to the new and the old eons. The combat with sin continues after one becomes a believer and our mortal flesh remains the arena of the daily bout between good and evil. This reality explains why Paul says I punish my body and enslave it so that after proclaiming to others, I myself should not be disqualified. Paul may be encouraged that through, although our outward man is decaying, yet our inward man is renewed day by day. But full deliverance from sin and its mortal sin awaits the resurrection. It takes place when this perishable body puts on imperishability. This mortal body puts on immortality. And when death has been swallowed up in victory. Until then, even after receiving the first fruits of the spirit, believers will groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. In eight twenty-three, the eye now in verse fifteen becomes an active agent who wills to do what is good, but ends up doing what it hates. Against this tension, again, this tension does not depict the unregenerate person's conflict that the eye's will aligns itself with God's law and the good. Paul is talking about himself and his quandary. He does not understand why he wills one thing and does another. Yet it happens. The fleshly eye is not the master of its actions. Sin has captured the will to do what is good and provokes one to commit actions that are on at odds with what one knows to be good. Paul knows not to covet, he does not want to covet, but his actions reveal a deep-seated covetousness. As a fleshly human, he veers toward carrying out bodily appetites that lead to death as if sin exerted some preternatural gravitational pull. This tension exposes the law's powerlessness to slay dragon sin to convert the thou shalt and the thou shalt not into obedience. In verses 16 to 7, Paul recognizes that his actions do not correspond to his good intentions, but it testifies to the goodness of the law. The problem is that sin still has a branch office in his flesh that makes him incapable of obeying the law. An assertion that he keeps repeating in verse 20. Sin overwhelms the will and like a puppeteer pulls the strings of the body's members to for- perform what is morally wrong on life's strength stage. So Paul asserts that nothing good dwells in him. The whole eye is implicated in sin. Paul does not believe that humans have a lower nature that sins and a higher nature that is culpable, capable of goodness. Fleshiness affects all human nature. And the law does not acquit anyone simply for willing to do what is right. It requires full obedience. And good intentions don't count. In verses 19 to 20, Paul does not allude to the unbeliever's quandary as Epictetus expressed it. What he wills, he does not do. What he does not will, he does or Ovid, who says, I approve the better course, yet I choose the, the worse. No, he is talking about his a Jewish confidence. A Jewish confidence that if one willed to do the law, one could do it. Now, I could cite the passages from Sirach, Testament of Asher, the Psalm of Solomon. Now, let me just cite four Maccabees. And four Maccabees... Uh, It says this, Not only is reason proved to rule over the frenzied urge of sexual desire, but also over every desire. Thus the law says you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or anything as your neighbor's. In fact, since the law has told us not to covet, I could prove to you all the more that reason is able to control desires. It's a Jewish point of view. Paul refutes this optimism. He's a Jew too. Paul refutes this optimistic view that an individual in the flesh has the power to obey the law. Even with knowledge from the law of what is good and the desire to do it, he still does what is wrong. The law may inform the will and his mind may decide it is good to fulfill it, but a dark impulse within him leads him him to transgress it. The will is captive to sin. It needs a greater power beyond itself and beyond reason to be able to fulfill the law. In verse 21, Paul summers, summarizes his point, and it gets very complicated here. He refers to uh, another law, a law in my members, etc. I, I, I have a long explanation of this, but I would just simply say that Paul is not referring to a principle. He is only referring to the law and uh, the Mosaic law. And he understands the law in this case as under the sphere of the spirit or the law in under the sphere of the flesh. Uh, in one case, the law is under the mastery of the spirit and the other, the law is under the mastery of, the, of sin which directs it in the wrong direction. Uh, and so in verse 20, and uh, I would also argue in verse 22, it's the, it's the key text. Uh, in his inmost self, Paul understands and subscribes to and delights in and de- desires to do what the law says. His joyful agreement with the law echoes the psalmist. My lips, this is Psalm 119, my lips will pour forth, pour forth praise because you teach me your statutes. My tongue will sing of your promise for all your commandments are right. Let your hand be ready to help me for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. The problem is that being at one's rational best is never sufficient. Paul is unable in his fleshly condition to turn his delight into the law into law into obedience. Any more than David was able. It is important to parse carefully Paul's wording in verse 23. Paul does not understand himself to be captive to sin per se, but he is captive to the law of sin which is in my members. He understands that his corporality makes him still vulnerable to sin's cancerous, metastasizing progressive. It means that freedom from slavery, which believers have been gifted in Christ, is not yet possessed as an anthropological phenomenon. Why else does he exhort his audience to pray to God, not to let sin exercise dominion over their mortal bodies, to make you obey their passions? Or why else does he command, no longer present your members to sin as instruments of wickedness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from life to death? From death to life. Paul lays, in verse 24, Paul lays bare his profound anguish over his helpless fleshly condition, his wretch. It reminds us for our hymn, amazing grace that saved a wretch like me, but sometimes people want to change that wretch to something else like they did. Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? But he believes himself to be a wretch. He inhabits a body of death that is totally subject to the power of death in this world. He finds himself incapable of obeying the law as he wants and the law offers no solution, creating what would seem to be a fatal impasse. He longs for deliverance from the endless war and frequent defeat. And caught in the overlap of the two ages, he pleads for deliverance from this body of death and its congenital weakness. It is important to know that Paul does not ask, what will deliver me? What will rescue me? He asks, who will deliver me? Paul Holloway asserts that the tyranny of desire is not a philosophical problem to be solved by the application of a rational therapy, nor is it a problem of moral ignorance to be solved by more instruction at the seminary. I added that point. (laughs) The law offers no deliverance from this fallen condition and only meets out death as the punishment for transgression. What humans need is a divine savior and a divine power to overcome sin stranglehold and to harness mutinous impulses and to transform them into obedience. Spoiler alert, that deliverer is Christ. And in verse 25, Paul says, thanks be to God's gracious initiative. He exalts that deliverance will come through Jesus Christ. The thanksgiving in 1 Corinthians 15, 56 through 57, I think provides a close parallel. Paul mentions the sting of death, sin, and the law as the power of sin, and then rejoices, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. The victory in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty seven clearly refers to the future deliverance of believers in the resurrection. So it follows that the reference to being rescued in 725 also refers to the believer's future, deliverance from this, from this present body of death. Weighted down as he is with a sense of his own righteousness as he lives in constant tension between what, is in the, what he is in the flesh and what he is in Christ, he throws his gaze forward to the decisive event which can, alone can bring the tension to an end. Through the Lord Jesus Christ means that his deliverance will transpire only for those who by the grace of God are joined to Christ and his resurrection. And it is only the wretched person who fully understands and fully appreciates God's grace in Christ. Now there's a negative statement that follows this in verse 25. Many commentators think it's out of place. It's a gloss. There's no textual evidence however to support these suppositions the text has to be interpreted as it stands and I would argue that this is something that appears all the way through Romans uh, that the second half of this verse serves as a delayed conclu- conclusion to what precedes. This, this is something that happens elsewhere and, and what it basically means is I myself or I dependent on myself alone and fundamentally in need of help to obey the law and to please God this is not then an expression of salvation to begin as Jimmy Dunn says it is the pro- it but of the process the beginning of the process of salvation that is underway and still to be completed. Let me say that again. It is not an expression of salvation still to begin, but of the process of salvation that is underway and still to be completed. After showing that none can obey God's commands on their own power and the law is powerless to help, Paul then shows in chapter eight that believers can do so only through the spirit and only through the spirit of God dwelling in them. Therefore, Paul is making an implicit command to believers to live in the spirit of, in the sphere of the spirit of Christ, who alone, alone is able to counteract the flesh that calls humans to fail, and to to fall into the clutches of sin. Many believers find in this passage a telling description of their own struggles. We still are mortal beings, not yet freed from the ravenous maw of evil longings and ambitions, no matter how much we try to deny, whitewash, or repress them. Luther's comment remains apropos. Indeed, it is a great consolation to us to learn that such a great apostle was involved in the same grievings and afflictions in which we find ourselves when we wish to be obedient to God. Others have chimed in, how can we doubt that this is true for Paul when it is so true for us? These comments capture why Paul uses the I in this section. He confesses to his audience that he is like them. He doesn't stand above them, he stands amongst them as a sinner. He understands that the old man has been buried in baptism, but he sure can swim. Stin's stubborn virus can lie dormant, but revive and cause a relapse that the old self buried in baptism comes back to life. As a result of this, all of us will face the inescapable sting of death. But Paul will insist in chapter 8 that while sin may remain, it need not reign. I hope you see I quoted Luther and this is John Wesley. Don't throw them out with a new perspective. We can join Paul in giving thanks to God Though we will not escape the death which is the fruit of our sin, we are able to survive it because Christ has endured it with us and for us.